Welcome to the Gospel Clarity Podcast, where we explore how the story of Jesus changes everything. In order for the gospel to be central, it must be functional. I'm your host, Mark Smith. And my name is Andrew Arthur. Thanks for joining us. We're glad you're here. saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Gospel <laughs> Clarity Podcast. It's quite an introduction. My name is Mark, and I have Andrew here with me. And today we are diving into the story, the, the fiction that Mark just quoted in that um, either eerie or incredible introduction, depending on, I guess, your perspective. That's for you to decide. Yeah. Which, you know. Could be a little bit of both. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, truth can be eerie. Yes. Um, we are talking about Till We Have Faces, written by C.S. Lewis. And this is all under the uh, uh, a rhythm that we kind of want to get into in this, this over the course of our podcast, where we are talking about... Uh, pieces of fiction that um, have impacted us, that either we have read or we are reading, and that may be of encouragement to you, as we do believe that Christians should read fiction literature. Yes, they should. You should read fiction literature. This is a book that has Im- that has impressed itself upon Mark and I at different points in our journey. Uh, we both read it years ago, and we've recently refreshed ourselves by reading it again, and uh, we're both struck once more by how profound this work is and how much truth there is to be kind of culled out of this beautiful story. And and so with that in mind, Mark, can you uh, tell us, uh, just kind of frame the story, what is Till We Have Faces all about? What's the story behind the story? Yeah, the story is from, it's a, it's a retelling of a Greek myth, um, a Greek myth from it was originally called Metamorphosis, and mm-hmm. um, it is the story of Cupid and Psyche. Mm-hmm. So Cupid is this god who is on the mountain, the god of the mountain, and um, he is the god to the son of Aphrodite. And in this book, it's called Ungit. And um, Ungit is the god of this little town called Glom. In this little town, is there's a king and... Um, who later dies, and his daughter, his oldest daughter, becomes queen. And the story shows is through a first-person narrative of the queen named Orul and her love for her uh, half-sister, mm-hmm. Psyche. Mm-hmm. And we get to see this really awesome play of how Psyche is um, sacrificed to the god of the mountain and all of the things that happen within that. Orol's um, journey to go find her sister again. Once she finds her, she sees that she thought that she'd be dead, but she's actually alive and well. And yeah, then, she went to retrieve the corpse, thinking she was going to bring her yep. back to bury her. And yep. after the sacrifice was made. Yep. And then what happens is Psyche ends up telling Orol that she is now with, uh, with the god of the mountain. But there's one catch. Psyche only saw the god of the mountain once in a flash, like a lightning flash, and she's never and it's he's been invisible to her. 
but she knows that she's under the care. But when she when Arul is hearing all of this, Arul doesn't believe mm-hmm. um, what Psyche is imagining. So Arul sets up to bring Psyche back with her through manipulation. Mm-hmm. And by telling her, if you really believe, if you really know that this God is there, then you need to see his face. So she told her to devise and set up this little plan for Psyche to basically betray the God of the mountain. And in doing so, when she does that, she's then cast out and set to uh, become a wanderer. And Arul is now, the book kind of tells us Arul is faced with this guilt of what she had done. And mm-hmm. it's the story through this first person narrative of someone um, kind of justifying their own wrong actions mm-hmm. to um, help themselves and make them feel better. Yeah. And so, and the whole story is told from Arul's perspective. Yeah. So when you're reading through the story, you are walking with a rule and you're seeing and her, um, yeah. you're seeing someone unravel uh, yeah. due to the choices that she made the her her perspective the misperception she had of what was going on in certain moments and in certain instances and then acting upon her misperceptions and and then as mark mentioned justifying her choices and what's interesting about the book is that she justifies her choices in the name of love, mm-hmm. that she believes she is being loving in all the decisions that she is making. But it turns out, which is the main theme of the book that we want to kind of explore today, is that um, is that in her efforts to love, she winds up devouring everyone around her in significantly harmful and kind of joy-robbing, life-depleting kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is just show you guys some examples that we found in the book that we thought were really helpful in depicting this kind of central theme of love devouring and love delighting. Um, But one that I would say is right up from the beginning, what you can see is Arul's misunderstanding of um, the gods' interaction and how she believes that the gods, their sole job is to devour and to take what is theirs. Mm-hmm. So, Ungit is um, the only way to please Ungit is through human sacrifice or um, uh, the priest choosing and coming to different places and um, doing kind of terrible, dark things on behalf of Ungit. Mm-hmm. Right? Would you say? So I, I think to me, when I think of uh, the theme of love devouring, the first central theme I see is Arul's example that she's given mm-hmm. from the gods. Yeah, I think that's I think that's um, I think that's right on in the sense that so her her only frame if she's drawing her frame of reference for what is virtuous and what is loving from her understanding of the deities, it makes sense that her love would be a devouring kind of love. Because that's what she believes gods are like. Yeah. And so you get into this incredibly profound conversation about um, how we perceive who God is and what God is like is going to give shape to the way we go about um, living or imaging forth that God in the world. And so she's a mere reflection of, the, of what she believes the gods to be like in the devouring nature of her love. 
and we're going to see that kind of because what out. would the gods do? The gods would consume; they would devour the sacrifices, or at least that's what it was believed. Yes. Um, and so, with that, she had this um, perception of the gods were going to take and not give towards anything that would be uh, transformative or life enhancing, or in a sense, it would be loving. She only had one side of the equation: that love devours; it consumes the sacrifice, it consumes the offering, but it gives nothing back. Uh, in love or in response to those things that were being done. And so when you think about that in light of the light of the story, there's this direction where she believes the gods just want to consume um, and devour, and she doesn't realize that... Um, actually, there's an interesting statement towards the end of the book where um, she has... Uh, Orul has a dream, and she goes, and she's... Uh, well, she, it starts off as a dream, and then it kind of influences her her real walk through the town where she's in old age and she's wanting to go basically commit suicide and kill herself. And just before she's about to jump in the river, she hears the voice of, of the gods that say, you have to die before you can die. And so, for example, when Jesus tells his disciples, anyone who would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily and follow me. He's saying, in order to um, follow me or to be with me or to be mine, you have to die to your, to your fallen self. And, uh, and some people read that and they interpret that as saying, okay, well, Jesus just wants to devour us. God just wants to devour us. He just wants to take from us. So, um, but the reason why Jesus is calling us to, to do that, to exercise self-denial, to die to self, to die before we die, so to speak, is so that we can become our true selves and we can know what love really is. And I think this is where um, Orul's experience in the temple is so interesting, where she's seeing these sacrifices, she's equating them with holiness as, an, as kind of an end of themselves, of God's devouring and taking, but not giving anything back. And what she discovers at the end of the story is that she has to, that she has to die before she dies. In other words, she has to, um, <laughs> she has to see the God's true intent that... Um, that we give ourselves to God, or in the story, they give themselves to the gods so that they can be given faces. And here what we see, and what we're about to read to you is an example of how Psyche actually understands the intention behind the gods. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how she is actually um, the only person in the whole book who understands that to find our true selves is to sacrifice and to, to give ourselves up to our own intentions and allow the gods to take and allow the gods to show us. Because the gods want to take in order to transform and to give back. Yep, exactly. So with that, uh, Andrew wanted to read a bit about uh, one of our favorite parts from the story um, to give us an example of this. And so this is Psyche offering herself up to the god of the mountain. And she's talking to her sister, her half-sister, about her desire and her willingness to go and essentially be devoured in that moment. And uh, it will, let's just listen to what she says. So Psyche uh, says, and her eyes are shining as she says this, I am going, you see, to the mountain. You remember how we used to look and long? And all the stories of my gold and amber house up there against the sky, where we thought we should never really go, the greatest king of all was going to build it for me. If only you could believe it, sister. No, listen. Do not let grief shut up your ears and harden your heart. And then Orul responds, Is it my heart that is hardened? And Psyche picks up, 
never to me nor mine to you at all. But listen, are these things so evil as they seemed? The gods will have mortal blood, but they say whose. If they had chosen any other in the land, that would have been only a terror and cruel misery. But they chose me, and I am the one who has been made ready for it ever since I was a little child in your arms. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from. And then Orul interrupts, and she says, and, and that was the sweetest? Oh, cruel, cruel. Your heart is not of iron. It's stone, rather. And she began to sob. And uh, then Psyche picks back up, and she refers to, she says, my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels not like going, but like going back. All my life, the God of the mountain has been wooing me. Look up once, at least, before the end, and wish me joy. I am going to my lover. Do you not see that now? So we see Psyche was willing to give herself up in that moment because she she had an understanding of what real love was. Yes, she understood that sacrifice in the name of love is to be a delight. Mm-hmm. And a rule that's so that's flying over her sister's head. She cannot conceive sacrifice and love in the same sentence or in the same category. And so this is her response to Psyche in that moment. I only see that you have never really loved me. It may well be you are going to the gods. You are being cruel like them. And here she is imposing, again, her understanding of what love is upon her distorted view of who the gods were and what the gods were calling for. Yeah, and Arul really is in this example, uh, or in that that moment in the story, um, an example of someone who does not see the truth as it really is. And um, a lot of scholars and different people have taken examples of this instance and of these two characters um, one understanding and delighting and the love that is uh, being given to them, being offered, right? And someone who completely misses it and misunderstands it. One very common um, uh, example would be the example of uh, a Christian becoming, having a new faith, having a revitalized faith, and going out to do something um, for in the name of, of Christ, for Christ, in his mission, and their family not seeing it. And how it's perceived. And how it's perceived. Mm -hmm. So uh, a man named Clyde Kilby, a big famous writer on C.S. Lewis's works, he kind of talks about Arul in this way. So he says, um, Arul, she's not a symbol, but an instance, a case of human affection in its natural condition, right? True, tender suffering, but in the long run, tyrannically possessive, and ready to turn to hatred when the beloved ceases to be its possession. Mm-hmm. And he gives us a little example of like this, of saying, um, think about it like this way. Someone becomes a Christian or in a family nominally Christian already, but they do something like becoming a missionary or entering into a religious order. The others suffer a sense of outrage. What they love is being taken from them. The boy must be mad and the conceit of him or is there something in it after all? That's what this the book leads to, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so um, like uh, another example would be if a person becomes a Christian and how their family and their friends may respond to this newfound faith and this newfound affection. 
And they then begin to see this new Christian make decisions in light of their faith that might take them away from things that they used to do, or uh, they might make choices that are perceived as being sacrificial. And it's it's possible for onlookers to interpret those actions as, as um, wasteful and as uh, foolish. But for the Christian, those decisions, when we sacrifice, we, we, do, we do so not because we view sacrifice as a burden, but we see sacrifice as a joy and a delight. It's because we're pursuing something greater. There's a deeper, more, there's a deeper affection that is stirring and that is driving the sacrifices we are willing to make in this world and the risks we are willing to take in this life, all in the name of, of this deep um, subterranean love and joy that we have in our connection with, with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we can see, um, kind of maybe moving from the direction of... Um, a rule to psyche that in the end, like she's actually right. She mm-hmm. is correct that the God of the mountain was desiring her mm-hmm. specifically among from everybody else. He was, he was after her um, to give her love. Mm-hmm. And as the book goes, you can see how um, a rule goes to claim her body from being that was, she thought that was going to be sacrificed, right? To come get the corpse. But what does she find instead? Plot twist. <laughs> Do we give it away? Uh, well, I think we're past spoilers now. <laughs> Psyche's alive, and she is happy, alive and she is and joyful. Happy. She's delighting in this other world that she is a part of yeah, and that but, she's inhabiting. But here's the kicker. She's filthy and covered in old rags. Mm-hmm. And so she looks... To the perception of... Yeah. Yeah, old so, rule. So she looks crazy, mm-hmm. and she's off in the mountain living there, <laughs> super happy, in rags and then a role says like you're you're filthy like what what's going on here and then this is what psyche says that is so close to the christian she says can't you see my robes can't you see the palace that i'm living in Mm -hmm. like can't you see taste this wine this you know amazing wine that i have and when a rule tastes it, it's actually just tastes like spring water. Mm-hmm. So a rule is blind to the to the beauty of what Psyche is experiencing mm-hmm. of her new life That's with so the God of the Mountain. Yeah, and she's she is she is perceived as being crazy. Yeah, as being um, having been manipulated and devoured by a, a malevolent God. Yeah, not treasured and loved by a benevolent God. And that's that's the big, that's the big uh, drive of the book. It's it's yeah. that perception and that misinterpretation of what is true and what is real, and how um, there are there's illusory truths that are close, but just aren't there as it relates to depicting what is true. Like for example, a rule's love. Like she, as I believe you mentioned earlier, that a rule really did love psyche, but it was a it was a twisted form of love. It yeah. wasn't an agape, God-like love because she didn't understand what God was like or what the gods were like in the story. Yeah, and and that plays out because her rule then in that moment when she sees Psyche in her rags up on the mountain, up in the mountain, she doesn't see the um, the beauty of it. So what she ends up doing is instead of allowing her to be happy, allowing her sister to be with the God of the mountain, she manipulates her and she takes. And she convinces her that 
what she really sees and what she's experienced is not real. And that if it was real, then she needs to have proof. And so she tells her to betray the god of the mountain through uh, doing the thing that the, mount, that the god said that, he, uh, that Psyche was not allowed to do, which was to see his face, right? Which was to see him mm-hmm. as a protection of her. So Cupid's kind of motive, which is the god of the mountain, Cupid's the god of the mountain, um, his whole thing is that gods are, are holy and cannot be seen mm-hmm. by people. And if they do, there are consequences to it. But a rule, she doesn't want Psyche to be with the god of the mountain. She wants her for herself, even if that means that Psyche is destroyed in the process, which is then that example of love devouring. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, such a, it's such a powerful narrative. It's such a powerful story. Um, there's so many, what I love about it, and this is what fiction can do for us, is that it, it brings so much nuance and complexity to a world and a life and a reality that is nuanced and that can be complex. Uh, see, uh, bad fiction writes in a very plastic, one-dimensional kind of way. And so you have the bad guys wearing white. I mean, sorry, the, the good guys wearing white, the bad guys wearing black, and it's very clear-cut. New motives aren't brought in. Uh, process How a person is thinking and perceiving and interacting with the storyline or the events of the story that there's very little explanation behind kind of why there's really little profound analysis behind what's driving their actions and their decisions. And what's so great about this story is that you have psyche and her, like Lewis has analyzed this character. I'm sorry, a rule and Lewis has analyzed her character so well and her motives and her intentions and her perceptions that he brings all of that out so that you begin to, as you read it, you, you feel a sense of conviction over how we, how you may have loved other people or how you may have loved even God and your relationship with God. And so, uh, because it, he, he shows us that, that, um, there is a lot of gray in a fallen world and so you begin to operate and you begin to live out of confusion and you begin to live out of ignorance. You begin to live out of uh, misapplication and misappropriation of, of things that are true and things that are real, i.e. love. And so in a fallen world, you have different kinds of love. And some love, uh, or you have love that's interpreted and defined and, and talked about in different categories and classifications. And, but it's all in an effort to try to find the true love or uh, agape, godlike love, which is the self-giving love that joy, takes finds joy and delight in the joy and the delight of the other, which is essentially what we believe about Christianity and the gospel. And but there are other kinds of love, whether it's eros love, an erotic form of love, a phileo love, which is kind of the the I believe it's the friendship kind of love. Um, you have these different kinds of love, and 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 they are ranked, whereas agape is kind of the chief of is the chief form of love. And in a world where we're kind of rising up the ranks to reach agape love, we we stop short of it because we don't understand or we we think we've arrived at real love when we actually have only arrived at a at a a an a we think we've arrived at true love, but we've only arrived at a at, at um a signpost. Uh, 
and a something that is to drive us to what is agape. And so Arul's issues in this story is that she stops too soon. She she she's at she has a form of love, but it's a base love. Yeah. And there are other levels for her to ascend to to understand what godlike love is. You know, I don't know if we if I'm just discovering this for the first time, but I wonder if that what you're just describing is C.S. Lewis was meant to show us through her veil, her veil being a blindness to the love that was actually presented before her. So for you, for those who haven't read it, there comes a moment in the story when she says, um, I've always been ugly. I'm always, I've always been an ugly person. And then she chooses as the queen to veil her face Mm -hmm. completely shutting herself off. I wonder if there's maybe some elements of that. Where she's living in confusion, darkness, she's, uh, I mean, yeah, I think there is something to the fact that you can't really love unless you're known and you can't be loved unless you're willing to be known. And she cuts herself off from everyone, um, as a form of self-protection. It's another form of a love that devours, um, because she, uh, wears that veil and she still interacts with people, demanding people to do things in service to her, people who she thought loved her. And but she wasn't reciprocating any love because love is to know and to be known, mm-hmm. and she's not there, right. she's hidden, yeah, veiled. And so, an interesting thing to do would be to uh, read one of C.S. Lewis's other works in conjunction with Till We Have Faces. He wrote a non fiction book called The Four Loves, where he talks about different kinds of love that, that exist in the world that is. And I think what he does with Till We Have Faces is he basically narrow, he puts those in story form and he's exploring those themes and showing how uh, different, ty- how some types of love are kind of at a base level and they don't, and how distinct they are from agape. And if we ever stop short of agape or godlike love, uh, we're not where we are to be. Uh, we're, we're not, we haven't. We haven't found our faces as human beings created in the image of God, so to speak. And so um, it would be an interesting read, or it is an interesting read, to read till we have faces in conjunction with the four loves. And it also illustrates the relationship between fiction and nonfiction. In the four loves, you have the nonfiction propositions and the truths and kind of the abstract concepts. But then until we have faces, those abstract concepts are embedded in a concrete narrative and a story that can drive these truths, these true things, deep into the affections of a person, which is one of the reasons we believe Christians should read fiction literature. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I would even maybe just add for the C.S. Lewis fan, he's done that before, too, in other books. So if you read um, The Abolition of Man and That Hideous Strength, those are meant to be paired together as well. Yeah, One's Mm -hmm. a fiction of an essay of a true... I I read The Abolition of Man when I was in London, England in 2001. I remember picking it up at a little bookstore in London and and reading it and didn't understand a thing. (laughs) (laughs) I did not get it. And then I read That Hideous Strength and it was... And so much more was illuminated. And I began to understand The Abolition of Man because I saw those same concepts in a narrative, in a story, in fiction form, and it made a big difference. Yeah. So that's how he helps us. He helps us kind of... (laughs) If he's trying to make a point... Let me tell you in a story. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's so many yeah. more themes we could explore so until more. we have faces. Um, 
other themes that I think we've talked about just to throw them out there that might whet appetites of listeners to maybe go and read this book. Um, I think there's an interesting interplay between myth and reality, uh, between what is true and what is mythological and how oftentimes myths are um, exaggerated or distorted forms of truth. And uh, one of the things that that led to C.S. Lewis's conversion was when J.R.L. Tolkien helped him helped him to consider how the gospel is the true myth, how the story of of redemption is the um, is is the true myth that every other mythology kind of hints at and echoes because they're trying to get at something that is true and that is real. And then here here comes the gospel that God was working in the consciousness of in the conscience of, of fallen humanity in the imagination of fallen humanity uh, all over the world um, for a long time. And then the gospel became the gospel is what Tolkien would say to Lewis is the true myth. It is what you've been longing for in reality, and um, which is a beautiful thing. And I think that theme is play is is touched on a lot in this book. Yeah, absolutely. Another couple of other themes you have is uh, holiness and judgment. Um, how in the end, Aurel is judged by the gods, mm-hmm. um, but in a way that she didn't expect. She wrote her count and her case to present to them, and in the end, they take off her veil, mm-hmm. and she's set before. And then by taking off her veil, she sees her real self and her fallenness, her um, absence. And the judgment in this book is her actually seeing her face for the first time, mm-hmm. which is very powerful. Right. She sees her motives, and then she sees all the people that she, in a sense, devoured right. and destroyed lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's but in the end, you know, we're not going to give you the very end because we do want you to read it up to the very end. And one note on that, when she yeah. sees her her true herself in her true form, like she kind of she was physically she was a, she's she's an ugly woman, and like, that's one of the like it's very clear that that is the point that she's described as being an ugly lady, uh, one that nobody found attractive, and she thought that virtue like, and she didn't recognize that. Um, the real ugliness. So she tried to cover her faith, her face, and hide her physical uh, unattractiveness, while neglecting the ugliness that was a part of her soul during the during the book. She thought inside she was beautiful and that she was virtuous and she was doing loving things. And and um, but but there, so there's a disconnect until the until that moment when she is judged and she's realizing, oh wait a second, my soul or my my face is just a reflection of what my soul has been like this whole time. Mm -hmm. So we will leave you at that, friends, and we encourage you and hope that you've read it or will read it after this podcast. And until then, maybe we'll do another one of these with another favorite fiction, fiction book of ours. What do you say? Sounds good. All right.